Welcome to Labor Intensive, a show about the labor movement in Canada. I am your host, Jody Tomchishin. On today's show, we have an interview with Jordan House and Asif Rashid, who wrote a book called Solidarity Beyond Bars, Unionizing Prison Labor. But for now, the news. Over the weekend, Hundreds of workers and allies rallied in support of striking ILWU workers in Vancouver. The roughly 7,400 dock workers have been on strike now for almost two weeks, and there was still no clear sign of an agreement. However, there is some slight movement on this front, as BCMEA and ILWU members met for the first time since this strike began this Monday, July 10th. The Alberta government is reviewing controversial Bill 32, which was passed three years ago and came into effect August 2022. The bill segmented union activities into core and non-core, making union members vote on spending for non-core activities, including political and charitable donations. This has prevented several unions from donating to charity, with studies predicting a 40% drop in charitable donations. Many unions, including CUPE and the Building Trades of Alberta, have filed constitutional challenges against the law, although this could all go away if the conservative government fixes the law. In international news, SAG-AFTRA, the union representing approximately 160,000 actors in the United States, is in emergency negotiations as I record this segment, with a strike deadline at 11.59 tonight, which is Wednesday, July 12th. If they end up going on strike, they will be joining 11,000 members of the WGA who've been on strike now for two months. One of the important issues being raised by actors is residuals for streamed content. They are also looking for ways to deal with the rise of artificial intelligence in acting. Lastly, unionized workers at Hyundai in South Korea are going on strike to protest the government's new labor reforms, which seek to increase punishments for illegal demonstrations. The labor unions are also demanding an increase in the country's minimum wage as the cost of living has increased, just like it pretty much has increased all over the world. For now, it seems like workers will be... uh, technically illegally stopping production for two hours during each shift to push back against these new reforms, with likely more action to follow. If you have any news you would like to share about your own union or local bargaining updates or strike support or whatever, feel free to email laborintensivepod at gmail.com and I will include it on next week's show. I should also add if you want to DM me on Twitter as well at uh, labintpod, then uh, that will work as well. But you can also email, whichever works. For the interview, I sat down with Jordan House, assistant professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University, and Asif Rashid, criminal defense, immigration, and prison lawyer and member of the Canadian Prison Law Association. Together, they wrote an excellent book, Solidarity Beyond Bars, Unionizing Prison Labor, that was published with Fernwood Publishing. You can pick up the book at fernwoodpublishing.ca if you are interested. In the interview, we discuss what prison labor looks like in Canada, the history of prison labor organizing, and also what unions can do going forward. 
However, for a much more in-depth look on this topic, I highly recommend the book itself, so please go check that out. You can follow Jordan's work on Twitter at Jordan L. House, and you can find Asif's work at arashidlaw.ca. And with that, here's my interview with Jordan and Asif. I have with me Jordan House, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University, as well as Asif Rashid, who is a criminal defense, immigration, and prison lawyer, and also a member of the Canadian Prison Law Association. And they have written a book together called Solidarity Beyond Bars, Unionizing Prison Labor. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, I wanted to begin this talk from more of a broad perspective. Uh, because we'll be talking about prison labor. I'm sure a lot of people listening to the show might not know exactly what that entails. So I'm curious, like, what kind of prison labor exists within the Canadian framework? But also, I specifically want to focus on the distinction that you both make in your book between the more privatized kinds of labor, but also the more, I guess, internal or, like, maintenance-related labor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so uh, in case people don't know, there are many prison systems in Canada. We've got a federal system, and then each of the provinces and territories have their own system. It's a pretty simple distinction. Uh, If you are sentenced to two years or more, you go to a federal system. Uh, If it's less than that, then you're in a provincial or territorial one. There's quite a bit of variation amongst the systems, Um, but there are also many, many similarities. And so um in in the federal system there is as you said both what what asif and i call institutional maintenance cooking cleaning clerical and administrative work trades work all the stuff that's necessary for the prison to function you know from one day to the next and then also prison industries uh which produce goods and services and the federal system has this program called CORCAN, which runs its prison industries and then some uh, provinces like Ontario, Quebec, and BC also have industry systems, uh, but not all the provincial systems have that. I guess if, if you want to explain a little bit more of like what CORCAN is, like, so do they, are they like a government run operation such that they like organize uh, the more maintenance oriented work or do they even engage in more of the uh, like privatized aspects of it as well? Well, so CORCAN, basically, they are uh, an agency that operates uh, under the the federal department under which the Correctional Service of Canada is. Uh, And they're called something called a special operating agency, which is is basically a a term that no one will have any idea what that actually means. Uh, But but what it is, is it's it's, uh, designed to be flexible. So the government allow this institution to be created under Correctional Service Canada uh, with flexible rules to create uh, business operations under the Correctional Service of Canada uh, for employment of prisoners. Uh, a lot of things that are called vocational training, a lot of production kind of work, like prisoners in core can make furniture, for example. Uh, during COVID-19, they made PPE, uh, things like that. So it's production work, it's uh, for use by other government departments, by other government people. Uh, and uh, it's also essentially vocational training, ideally supposed to be vocational training, although prisoners question whether uh, 
any of that is truly happening the way it should be uh, to train prisoners in the kinds of work they need to to learn about in order to be set up uh, on the outside. And that's heavily criticized that that's actually happening the way it should be. Well, yeah, Corkin has uh, four business lines. Let's see if I get them right. It's uh, agriculture, construction, manufacturing, and textiles. And so the idea of, of Corkin and other, you know, the provincial equivalents like uh, Ontario's program is called Trillcore. Uh, is to produce goods and services for sale. And uh, almost all of the time that those goods and services are sold to the government, mostly the correctional systems themselves, but also other government departments. Um, and there is some very limited private involvement in uh, prison industries in Canada. I mean, even in the United States, when people think about this, you think about you know, Victoria's Secret or Whole Foods, some of these big companies which have been implicated in uh, prison industry and prison labor schemes. There's That's only a very tiny piece of the uh, pie in the United States, and it's even less the case here. Uh, but there is, you know, for many years, there was a commercial um, meat cutting operation that was part of Corcan. There's a few very small um, manufacturing businesses, much more substantial in terms of private involvement in Canada is this kind of like NGO sector, organizations like Habitat for Humanity, uh, for example. I am curious, like, if you happen to know this, like why in Canada is that relationship with more private sector stuff, uh, I guess, less big than what it is in the United States? Because it usually, I think in a lot of people's minds, like the United States, they have this like a prison industrial complex with private prisons and whatnot. Like, it's almost like all in our heads that like America does this. <laughs> but why isn't yeah. it that bad in Canada? I mean, it, it has to do with history. And I think basically like levels of struggle, the role of the labor movement, the relative strength of, of the labor movements in those different countries, different legislative and political histories it's like probably a bit of a complicated story to try to figure out exactly um but in short you know in in a previous era you know up to the 1930s there was you know lots of involvement of private entrepreneurs uh in in prison labor you know through things like convict leasing schemes or what they called contract systems which basically let you know, uh, factory owners just sh set up shop in prisons. And it was, you know, a long struggle, partially waged by the labor movement in its own interests, you know, to not be undercut by ch by cheap prison made goods, but also out of some sort of humanitarian impulse to, you know, say that this is unjust uh, exploitation. But then also opposition to these kinds of schemes from uh, the business people and capitalists who didn't benefit directly from it. They didn't like you know, if you're a shoemaker and your competition's making shoes in prisons for cheaper than you can, uh, you have an interest in, in trying to limit that, too. So basically, this created a system, especially coming out of World War II, it was almost universal in North America to have what was called the state use system, which is effectively what we have in Canada, which means that you can produce goods and services in prison for sale, but the state is the is the buyer, um, you know, the government. And so in the 1970s, because of increasing, um, you know, prison populations, uh, kind of punitive turn, you know, the onset of neoliberalism and this kind of idea that, you know, pe people should be, uh, you know, uh, paying, you know, their, their keep, 
there was a push to kind of reprivatize uh, prison production in, in the United States and then also to some degree in Canada. And so you get these kind of hybrid state use, some market involvement. Uh, but even in the United States, it's less than 1% of, of prisoners work for a private uh, operation. There's also, uh, I, I don't want in any way suggest that Canada is really doing any kind of a good job in following international law because they're not when it comes to prisoners. Uh, there's all kinds of horrific treatment of prisoners languishing in solitary confinement, including in Nova Scotia. And there's little to no action by government whatsoever to address that, even though it's presumptively torture. Um, so I, just to, as a, putting that out there as a caveat to start with, but there, there are something called the, the International Rules for the Minimum Treatment of Prisoners called the Mandela Rules. So in the Mandela Rules, uh, there's a, a rule uh, where uh, the labor of prisoners is not supposed to be subordinated to making a private profit. So that, that's something that is in there. And Canada likes to at least pretend that it's concerned uh, about international law. Uh, it definitely does. Uh, try to present itself around the world as a champion of human rights. So uh, perhaps to some degree, there uh, this is uh, something where uh, they may be concerned about opening up prisons too much to the private sector. Uh, it's just too obvious that they're they're clearly not following international law. Then, yeah, thank you for clarifying that because I didn't mean to suggest that we're better, but it, just to acknowledge that there is a difference <laughs> and, and what that difference is. But yes, uh, I didn't mean to imply that. I, I did want to get to something. Uh, sort of earlier that you were talking about, Asif, about uh, the notion of rehabilitation. And this is something that I, I feel is one of the like main focuses of your book, is this question of the sort of purpose of prison labor and whether it's supposed to be rehabilitative or not. And we could already see, sort of see in some of the discussion we've had already about the fact of like the government being the primary uh, purchaser of the goods produced by prison labor and in that sense, they're they're getting a deal almost, right? So it's it could be seen as a cost saving thing, rather than necessary a rehabilitative thing. But uh, maybe you could uh, give a sort of brief explanation of why it is pitched as rehabilitative, and maybe what the evidence suggests to that end. Yeah. So it, uh, this this term rehabilitation is is essentially weaponized. Let's just put it bluntly. Uh, it's it's used in order to limit uh, prisoners from having full rights that they ought to have. In particular, in our book, we talk about their labor rights. Their labor rights have been prevented uh, largely by this exclusionary term called rehabilitation. The suggestion is that prisoners are not actually doing employment, uh, even though they could be cooking, cleaning, doing maintenance work, uh, making furniture, doing all kinds of things that clearly look like employment if anybody outside of prison is doing it. But inside prison, it's called programming. And uh, there's, it's actually legislated that in the Correctionals and Conditional Release Act, Corrections and Conditional Release Act, we try to say that again slowly, uh, that's the, the governing legislation uh, of uh, the correctional system in Canada at the federal level. And right in there, in Section 78, it says that uh, remuneration to prisoners is encouragement for participation in programming. So they try and suggest that it's not wages, it's encouragement for participation in programming. But I think to myself, hold on a second here. What worker outside of prison isn't encouraged to keep working by being paid a wage? Of course, that's what wages are. It's encouraging you to keep showing up and doing your job. Who does their job by and large because they love their job versus because they need the money? 
It's so, but in prison, when you go into the twilight zone in prison, suddenly you have uh, the money being paid, not being wages is, is to encourage prisoners to participate in the programming. Uh, so it's right in there. And uh, there have been cases where this subject has been brought up. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, it, back in 1977, the only time that prisoners in Canada have ever unionized at the provincial uh, Guelph Correctional Center, uh, prisoners were, were able to unionize together with their non-prisoner counterparts in an abattoir operation under the Canadian Food and Allied Workers Union, Local 240. Uh, and the subject came up at the Ontario Labor Relations Board the subject of, hey, these prisoners are uh, engaged in rehabilitation. However, it was determined by the Labor Board that despite that, because there was a benefit to the employer, the private employer, that uh, they had to be considered employees, amongst other reasons. So there was the issue of rehabilitation that came up at that Labor Board, but it was overcome. But since then, it hasn't been. Since then, it's been a huge barrier. And when, when federal prisoners tried to unionize back in the, uh, the 2011, there was an attempt by a man named David Jolivet, a number of counterparts uh, out in the BC uh, Federal Correctional Center to try and unionize and they were stopped. They weren't able to sign up their co-workers uh, and they filed an unfair labor practice, went to the Public Service Labor Relations Board in 2013 and uh, they were rejected. Uh, they were told uh, two things. One, uh, you're not employees under the public service because no one appointed you to your positions. Your jobs haven't been created. And secondly, your work uh, you haven't demonstrated, you haven't proven that your work isn't more uh, employment rather than rehabilitation, because there, there actually is a legal test about whether uh, the nature of what someone's doing is more for the economic benefit of the employer or for the benefit of the person doing it, which is, would then be rehabilitation. Um, but and in any case, there's, there's a lot to be said about this, but the term, uh, I, I strongly caution anyone to just accept that term without criticizing how it's used. Uh, it's not actually defined anywhere. You won't find a definition of it anywhere in the Corrections and, uh, Corrections and Conditional Release Act or regulations or anywhere else. It's left very vague. Yeah, maybe I could just quickly add, uh, you know, it's once upon a time, people in Canada, like other places, were uh, forced to do work in prison as punishment, right? And we've probably heard from old movies or something about people being sentenced to hard labor. Um, but, you know, this is no longer the case. And in, you know, as Asif was talking about in kind of contemporary correctional thinking, uh, prison labor is rehabilitative. The idea is that, you know, people lack um, employment skills or, you know, the ability to work and that therefore this is part of what puts them in the conflict with the law. You know, what's very interesting about this, though, is unlike other forms of programming, uh, there is no uh, effort to match uh, employment needs to uh, work programming, right? Unlike, say, drug treatment or anger management, where you would only get someone to participate in this, this kind of programming if they had a problem in that regard, if they had a need. Uh, it is assumed that everyone who goes to prison uh, in the federal system, certainly, um, and also in the provincial and territorial ones, will work and needs um, these kinds of employment skills, despite the fact that there's no real effort to match uh, the kinds of skills offered in prison to like real needs in the labor market. You know, like Asif and I talk in the book about the fact that you know, there is uh, Corcan runs this textile operation where mostly women 
uh, work in textile shops, you know, sewing garments. And it's like you come out of prison after doing that. Where where are the where are the textile factories? Those don't exist anymore uh, in Canada. And so, yeah, the the entire reasoning, um, you know, that that prison labor gives people marketable skills, uh, it doesn't really uh, bear out in in actual fact. And that act has actually been criticized for years, every single year in uh, the uh, correctional investigators report. Every year there's a report by the con uh, correctional investigator, which is the federal prison ombudsperson, uh, about uh, the prison conditions, about key issues of concern that have been raised by prisoners, things that need to be improved. And every single year, uh, the, the issue has been mentioned that there is a real mismatch between what is actually needed uh, like by prisoners uh, for them to truly be prepared for release, as Jordan was mentioning, uh, and what they're actually doing. What they're doing tends to be more beneficial for Correctional Service of Canada than it is for the prisoners. So you have CSC through CORCAN or through their institutional uh, uh, maintenance uh, programs that they have, uh, employment, I used to use word programs, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, it's, it's confusing me too, it's so confusing. But uh, the uh, the employment that they're doing for institutional maintenance um, and for, for CORCAN, the institutional maintenance is clearly for the benefit of the institution. Because is, if the prisoners didn't do it, who's going to do it? They'd have to hire it out. They have to hire out workers at prevailing wages to do the cooking, cleaning, maintenance, and other operations to keep the prisons running. Uh, for the uh, CORCAN operations, you could look at a couple of examples of making furniture uh, that's used by other federal government departments. Well, I bet they save a lot of money on that versus if they had to purchase that stuff on the open market. Uh, what about uh, making a, a PPE during COVID-19? Well, I bet there was huge savings from that uh, by prisoners making uh, those materials that were absolutely necessary uh, for people to have at the time. So clearly uh, you have benefits being gained by the government uh, as a result of the, the work being done. I had a, this like constant question while reading your book, which is about, and maybe this is jumping ahead a little bit, but we will uh, get through some of the unionization stuff in a second. But like part of the sort of job in sort of like moving towards uh, unionization will be convincing the public that these workers are, you know, worthy of support in, in some fashion, right? And I think this sort of distinction between whether or not this work is punitive or rehabilitative, it's not only like not clear legally, I think, like maybe somewhere it's written rehabilitative, but that is like weaponized in various ways for the institution to get what it wants, right? But like that almost like lack of clarity, I think, serves into the general public, which also doesn't have a sense of clarity in whether or not work in prison is for rehabilitative purposes or we're doing it just to punish people. I, I guess it's like, is part of the project in normalizing prison labor in order for them to be able to unionize uh, also part of that project? Should it be like trying to find some clarity in like whether it should be for a certain purpose or not? Yeah, I mean, I think we're uh, of the opinion that uh, to, you know, normalize or regularize uh, working conditions in prison would be to not only prisoners' benefit, but to the public's benefit. And the Office of the Correctional Investigator that Asif just mentioned has also pointed out uh, on more than one occasion the way that 
low wages for prisoners, subminimum wage, like brutally subminimum. The the maximum wage in federal prisons is six dollars and ninety cents per day, not per hour, per day, and that is subject to up to thirty percent uh, of deductions. So you know we're talking pennies um, uh, on the hour, and the Office of the Correctional Investigator has pointed out the fact that it is clearly the case that if you um, don't allow people to build up some money, that when they get released, people who are maybe already inclined to uh, obtaining money through illegal means, if you put them on the street without any means to support themselves, what are they going to do? They're likely, they're more likely to reoffend. And so this is uh, a strong reason for there to be, uh, you know, at least normal wages to give people a reasonable chance at succeeding uh, upon release. And in fact, there's something really interesting is just a few weeks ago, uh, the Constitutional Court in Germany uh, just declared that that country's use of subminimum wages or actually wages less than those prevailing in industry um, was unconstitutional on exactly this basis that uh, on the one hand, it set people up to fail upon release and therefore completely undermines the entire idea of a correctional system correcting something or rehabilitating people. And then on the other the other argument that, that the German court um, considered, which is really interesting, is the fact that um, if you take people who are, uh, you know, in conflict with the, with the criminal justice system, uh, and you force them basically to work at uh, substandard conditions and without legal rights, uh, this is likely to build up certain kinds of resentment to the system and to the idea of, you know, a, a fair day's work for a fair day's wage, which, you know, Asif and I would have some crit criticisms of that as a, as a good idea of what it means to be a worker. But still, you can see what I'm saying. Um, where, uh, again, it, 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 these kinds of carve-outs, legally and, and regulatory carve-outs, can set people up to uh, fail and to cause them to uh, carry resentments, which is unlikely to, to make it easy for them to, you know, find work or reintegrate into society upon release. Yeah, actually, and I, I would strongly argue that uh, if you want to actually come up with a functional definition of rehabilitation, which means somebody is in prison and they, they're they doing what they need to do uh, to uh, prepare themselves to not go back. In other words, to be an, an engaged and involved member of the community upon release. What better way to do that than to unionize? <laughs> because through unionizing, you learn to work together with other people, uh, engage in peaceful labor relations with your employer, in this case, your jailer, uh, and uh, not only that, but the exa example of the of the workers in Guelph at the Guelph Correctional Center through the abattoir there, uh, they were able to, uh, as part of, of the gains they made through unionization, uh, able to at least have the opportunity to have a job upon release. And wouldn't that be a great way to stay out of jail? Things like that. So through unionization, through the gains that can be made through it, uh, so much can be done to uh, for prisoners not to come back uh, through that revolving door. I mean, wages are part of it, but but only one part of it. I think overall, all these other things are actually uh, very useful for uh, avoiding uh, recidivism, which is uh, someone uh, going back to jail uh, after they got out. Uh, but definitely the wages are a huge issue. And 
Meanwhile, the inflation since the uh, 1980s of prison goods, the prisoners have to buy things at the canteen, including cleaning products and other things that they need, supplements to the food, which they don't get enough during their three meals at the cafeteria. Uh, it's gone up 700%. So the wages have stayed stagnant for 40 plus years, while inflation has gone up 700% of the goods they're, uh, they're buying it. And so they, they have nothing upon release, basically. Like, I feel that, like, in order to, like, pitch this idea that it's rehabilitative, it almost feels more punishment giving them pennies per hour, in a sense. Like, just that fact alone is psychologically more punishing than if you just were like, we're training you and almost didn't offer pennies, right? Because it's almost like the pennies seems like some sort of uh, admission that, like... It's, a, it's an insult. Yeah. Yeah. It's an insult. Absolutely. I think I think a lot of people understand it to be that. And, you know, it's if you look at the history of prisoners wages, uh, you know, the reason that prisoners started to be paid to begin with uh, was to a large degree. I mean, first and foremost, because of prisoners activism. And we cover in the book, if you look at the origins of uh prisoners in Canada getting wages, it's through strike actions and, and rioting and activism in the 1930s that leads to prisoners getting paid. But, but it wasn't only kind of this demand for wages from below. There were prison administrators, particularly the people in charge of prison labor, who said, there's no way that we can get people to uh, do a good job, to produce quality goods and services that we can sell to, you know, recoup costs if there's no positive incentives. And so there is this really contradictory kind of uh, position that I think prison administrators, you know, uh, people in charge of prison labor programs are in because uh, low wages for prisoners is also makes it hard to motivate people. Yeah, and uh, I mean, yeah. And what Jordan was mentioning, it's uh, uh, the the insult, uh, the, the low wages, the pennies, uh, the absolute degradation, let's call it what it is, it's a degra degradation. Uh, it's a dehumanization that, that happens uh, in terms of treatment of, of a prisoner worker uh, in prison. And uh, somehow uh, uh, somebody in prison is supposed to be a better human upon release after they've been, they've been dehumanized. It seems to be utter nonsense. Uh, you know, and any kind of sensible approach, like, you know, Jordan was giving the example of Germany, uh, something like that, that would go a long way. Uh, getting uh, the prevailing wage to realizing I'm treated like a human being. Um, how far would that go towards uh, how how well someone would engage upon release with the rest of society? You both go over the debate between prison abolition and its possible conflicts with the idea of unionizing prisoners. For the sake of brevity, we don't have to cover that entire topic. Uh, of course, people can go read the book for that. But I did find it compelling when you write that prisoners themselves want work and want the ability to organize. So I was wondering if you could speak to that. Like, what what are prisoners themselves looking for? Yeah, I'd say there's kind of a few things at play here. Uh, one is, yeah, prison labor is a kind of form of discipline and oppression that, that people in prison uh, face. But it's not only that. Uh, it is also, and this is something that we cover in the book, a potential source of power, right? Because prisons need prison labor to function. 
this means that prisoners have the possibility of withholding that labor, uh, just like workers in, in broader society. And many prisoners at different times and places uh, have recognized this and, and understood it to be a key way of kind of advancing and defending their interests is by being able to organize around work. But there's also the much more uh, mundane reason, which Asif kind of already covered, which is that uh, income is absolutely necessary for prisoners. And because of that, um, those, you know, what you could call the kind of like uh, mundane economic kind of forces, compulsion that makes anybody get a job, uh, prisoners want to have work so that they have an income because not only do they need to increasingly cover more of their basic costs, things like basic hygiene products, shampoo, deodorant, toothpaste, these things have to be purchased, uh, but also, you know, to maintain community relationships, to to have to you know to have stamps or phone calls with spouses or children or parents. Uh, this costs money, and this is necessary, you know, for human beings to have these kinds of relationships. You know, just on on its face, that's obvious. Uh, but also maintaining these kinds of relationships is something that prisoners need to be able to show to a parole board to get released. Uh, and so it's another way that, you know, uh, depriving people can really undermine the whole point of, of you know, quote unquote, uh, corrections. You also mentioned in the book about like prisoners fighting back against idleness as well. Like there's almost a sense in which work is is something to do, which is way better for even their mental health. I mean, so long as you're not dangling pennies in front of them while they're doing it. But like, yeah, just the ability to have something to do is, uh, you know, I mean, I think most people work, even though, you know, there's a broader discussion about capitalism and its exploitation. But like, people would rather work than just sit there and do nothing. And 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 that's that being the truth in, in prison, that uh, prisoners by and large, they do want uh, to do work, there are some who are denied the opportunity. Actually, uh, interestingly enough, the uh, unemployment rate for uh, Black prisoners is uh, 10% in the federal system, while outside of prison, it's uh, 7%. So it's actually uh, worse inside prison than it is outside of prison, uh, showing that there's uh, a, a certain level of very serious racism going on in terms of who gets jobs, because not everyone gets jobs. There are barriers to getting jobs. So what happens is uh, some prisoners are labeled uh, as being part of security threat groups. Uh, and in real world terms that normal people can understand, gangs. That's that's what's being referred to by security threat groups. So certain uh, prisoners, a lot of black prisoners, a lot of indigenous prisoners are pegged as being part of gangs. Being part of a security threat group will effectively prevent you from getting the best jobs. Uh, often you'll, you'll be stuck with no jobs. You'll be considered, oh, you're, you're part of a security threat group. You're too much of a risk. We're, you're not. We're not. You're not going to get clearance to do jobs in certain areas, and therefore you're you're basically stuck not getting work. Guess what happens to these prisoners? Who, by and large, they're black, indigenous, they're from other marginalized backgrounds. Uh, they have a harder time getting out because when they go before the parole board and, and their correctional plan, which is basically your plan to re-engage with the community and be safe to return to the community, uh, it looks bad. It's like, oh, you can't get work. It, why not? Oh, you're part of a security group. Group, so you're dangerous. So it's it's just a cyclical uh, 
problem where uh, you can't get work because you're part of a security threat group. Uh, so you can't get out um, oh, because you can't get work and then on and on it goes. It's uh, it's a huge problem uh, and uh, it's something that has not been addressed to any degree, uh, to any satisfaction whatsoever. Yeah. And just just one more point, you know, about the I think it's not all work is the same. Right. And I think prisoners have wanted uh, good, safe, well remunerated work, uh, but many you know, there's there's many instances through things like, you know, collective actions and protests or or, you know, uh, just individuals expressing this in different ways, which is like people want their work to be be meaningful and to feel like it contributes to something. Um, and so I do think there is, you know, a demand for uh, prison labor to be, you know, not only kind of for the sake of the correctional system, but also, obviously, the workers themselves should get something out of it. But part of getting something out of it is wanting that work to, you know, contribute more broadly to to society. Asif, you sort of already mentioned this as well. There was a union that was formed in the 70s in Guelph. I guess, I mean, I think most people don't know that that happened. <laughs> it's probably not in the forefront of many people's minds. So I... If it's worthwhile, do you mind going over like the history there and how that union in uh, the Guelph Correctional Facility like formed in the first place? So yeah, so uh, the the Guelph uh, Correctional Facility in the mid nineteen seventies um, was uh, there was a pilot project which was part of this broader Ontario provincial effort to modernize and increase prison industries, and part of the idea was that more private involvement was um good and, and necessary and so uh what happened was that the guelph correctional facility had a abattoir on site there was a meatpacking operation uh this was contracted out for private management and a private company came in and eventually established a mixed prisoner you know incarcerated worker non-incarcerated worker workforce so people were working side by side some were prisoners some weren't different kinds of um jobs you know in a, in the meatpacking operation um and over the course of this uh pilot project in 1977 the workers were successful in unionizing with the canadian food and allied workers union um and asif mentioned a, a few things but very critically um in the subsequent rounds of collective bargaining um, the, the workers were able to abolish the, uh, differentiation in pay for incarcerated and non-incarcerated workers. Prisoners were able to, um, have better access to better jobs. So they weren't concentrated in the, you know, least skilled, least desirable jobs. Um, they had very significantly one full, um, labor rights around, uh, things like holding elected office so prisoners could run for, you know, local or, or whatever union positions. Uh, and a couple very important things is that um, the, the prisoners were able to win the right uh, to kind of expand their freedom of movement. So prisoners who were in the union got temporary release passes to attend union meetings in the community, which is very much an unprecedented thing. Uh, and then secondly, Asif already mentioned this, prisoners won the right to 
um, keep their jobs upon release, which you would think that this would not be a thing that a union would have to fight for in this context, right? If we say that it's good for prisoners to have employment upon release, then one would think that, you know, a successful uh, prison labor scheme would, would guarantee or close to guarantee that that was the case. But because of correctional prerogatives, basically, the administrators didn't want former prisoners coming back into the system um, for, you know, because in, in their minds, it was a safety and security concern. But the union won the right for workers to keep their jobs uh, upon release. And it's interesting because you, you hear these things, and I'm sure uh, the average person would think they're impossible to achieve, absolutely impossible. How the hell are prisoners going to ab get parity? be able to keep the jobs upon release no way in hell but can't forget what happens unionization is a game changer because uh one one thing that is is one of the favorite uh, uh things that uh, uh correctional administrators and staff like to do is ignore prisoners it's, it's one of their favorite hobbies just ignore prisoners just pretend they're not saying anything let them just drone off and, and send them off to a grievance process that will take years to deal with and get them nowhere however <laughs> upon unionization uh, the employer has no choice but to show up at the bargaining table because that is part of, of of the rights that are included under the right to collective bargaining, which is now constitutionalized, uh, that the employer has no choice, must show up at the bargaining table and bargain in good faith. They can't ignore prisoners in that situation. And so back in uh, 1977, after the prisoners unionized and they got to the bargaining table, uh, even before you had all these rights enshrined in the Constitution, uh, the rights were already fought for and gained uh, at local levels. Uh, and the employer had to show up at the bargaining table and bargain in good faith. And there were real issues uh, that had to be addressed, which is differential pay for workers doing the same jobs. Can't do that. It's a big problem with that. Uh, as well as the opportunity to keep jobs upon release, that's uh, that's a normal kind of a, a provision that is negotiated in other settings, including in a university uh, grant paid research employees, for example, can can win uh, the right to be able to be prioritized for new jobs that appear at the university if their previous contract ends, things like that. So nothing crazy about it. It's the kind of thing that can be negotiated. Um, one really interesting thing I think about why it happened uh, has to do with the, the labor climate at the time. Uh, and I'm sure Jordan can get more into this as well. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the reasons why the Ontario Labor Relations Board uh, awarded uh, the certification to include uh, prisoner workers uh, in the bargaining unit was the fear of non-incarcerated workers being used as scabs in the event of a strike. That was actually a concern that the, the Labor Board like, was worried about. And they're only going to be worried about this problem if the climate is one where you have stronger unions who are going to uh, essentially like fill the streets and uh, engage in all kinds of disruption uh, in opposition to the use of scab labor. Um, it's it's uh, something the labor movement can can use effectively as leverage that, uh, uh, you know, what happens if you use scab labor? Well, we're going to shut you down kind of thing. So uh, I, I'd say the climate today is very different. But uh, anyway, we can get into the opportunities today uh, as we go forward here. And maybe it's worth also just saying that in terms of public safety, uh, that this pilot project, it ran for nearly 20 years, 15, 20 years, something like that, uh, before it was moved off site and then ended because of basically mergers in the meatpacking industry uh, swallowed it up. Um, but, you know, there was no 
significant public safety issues that came out of it. There was no scandals. Um, this caused uh, no problems in terms of, of safety and security in the institution or the community. It's, I mean, it's also almost acknowledged. I think you there was at one point you referenced, uh, I think it was a prison guard union, and their pushback against it was like, if we give the prisoners the ability to grieve, we will lose our authority, which is almost like it's clear it's about their own power rather than necessarily safety in that respect. Yeah, and, and guards and guard unions are big. Uh, they're the elephant in the room, really, when, when we're talking about these kinds of issues. Yeah, I mean, I guess we can move on to that, which one of the sort of like final chapters of your book addresses the sort of like impediments to current day uh, unionization. And we've already gone over some of that, including the issue of rehabilitation in the law. But there's also the fact that I guess in the Guelph case, you had United Food Workers, which were a big union at that time, supporting that unionization campaign. And you don't see a similar push today. In fact, you see an absence of that. When you had various organizing happening, the unions remained silent or just didn't help. And part of that is probably, you mentioned the fact that they unionize uh, prison guards uh, and stuff like this. But what are the other reasons why there is this tension here of why they wouldn't necessarily back prison workers from unionizing. We talk in the book about the importance of an inclusive labor movement. And actually, I think me and Jordan would agree that that's, that's one of the real points we're trying to raise th through the book is it's not just about uh, an argument uh, and advocacy for prisoners to unionize. It's about prisoners being included in an inclusive labor movement, which is considering organizing all workers. Uh, an expansion of the working class. There are so many workers right now in marginalized positions, and we're seeing the increasing precarization of workers, uh, more and more workers doing jobs for shorter periods of time, more gig economy work. Uh, so much work now is in a very precarious setting. Uh, migrant farm workers, of course, uh, all very precarious work tied to your employer. And if you upset your employer, not only you lose your job, but you lose your status in Canada and can suddenly be faced remo facing removal. Uh, so there's so much uh, in the way of precarious workers out there. Where's the labor movement? Has the labor movement truly risen to the occasion? I'd say, unfortunately, not yet, but it must for its relevance. The rates of unionization across the country are quite low. The public sector tends to be pretty high, but private sector, it's extremely low. Uh, so there needs to be a massive uh, organizational campaign, like everywhere, uh, to to be like essentially an inclusive labor movement. That's what the labor movement needs to focus on. If prisoners can unionize, everyone can unionize. <laughs> like, if the bottom unionizes, what's everybody else doing? So uh, how to defeat these barriers? There are significant barriers in the way that, that really need to be talked about and flushed out. The problem is there's there are formulas that unions use in order to decide whether or not it's worth it to engage in unionization campaign. Some unions will say, well, what's the size of the bargaining unit? If it's if the work... Uh, uh, place is too small, we're not going to bother. Uh, what are the wages? You know, wh what kind of dues will be coming in? Is this is this viable? Uh, uh, is it likely workers are going to have their jobs for very long or is there, there very high turnover? Uh, things like this could actually determine whether or not a campaign is engaged in. Uh, it's not so simple to just say, you know, call a union if you, you're in a workplace and then begin a campaign like that. 
um, there, there, there's a lot of approvals that need to happen for organizing money and resources to come in to support you. So, so there's a lot that needs to be addressed about who is the labor movement for, and you know, can we please uh, try and remove some of these barriers? And can unions engage in solidarity organizing uh, using their massive resources they've accumulated over the years uh, to help workers unionize who who will who will hardly make any money? And the amount of dues, sorry, it's not really going to service uh, the local to to the full extent that's needed. So other resources from the union as a whole will have to come in to support that local. That's just the way it's going to be. But it's an investment. It's an investment in enlarging the working class to then fight for much more. A bigger working class can put more pressure on governments across the country, can put more pressure on the private sector uh, to force their hand, to make changes happen. Working class are losing today. Everything's getting worse. Cost of living is going up. Uh, housing is going up. Everything is getting worse and worse for working class people across the country. There needs to be a massive improvement in working class power. And of course, if it starts from the bottom. It'll work its way all the way to the top. I wonder too, like in terms of investment, like sure, you're not going to get dues right away. I mean, like I would rather unions not think, I mean, I get they have to function, but like there's still a sense of like you invested it now, but then maybe you could apply your resources to have a legal fight like in Germany and make it so that these workers aren't getting paid pennies a day. Yeah, and it's it's. I think the idea of looking forward and looking to the future uh, is crucial in order to uh, uh, to really uh, make the case. And and I think really part of it will also include uh, actually directly intervening, having uh, those who support prisoner unionization outside of prison, uh, working with prisoners uh, to show up uh, to you know union meetings, uh, uh, conventions, and and uh, talk about these issues. In order to for it to be on the table, I think Asif has already kind of mentioned this, but you know the the labor movement today, I think it's it's fair to say, is taking an extremely defensive position, which is basically about holding on to what it's got. Uh, but this is an unsustainable position. Can't just batten down the hatches and hope to weather the storm. Uh, it, things are not trending in a good direction, and unions will be irrelevant if they if unionization is understood to be reserved for a privileged strata of mostly public sector workers and a few legacy private sector workers, basically. And so, yeah, we need to move away from uh, conceptions of, you know, what can a particular union get for its individual members to a what is the working class in this country and beyond? And what is the, you know, responsibility uh, and, and obligations of unions in relation to that working class. And I think we, you know, we don't make the case that just unionizing prisoners would somehow like turn the tides of, of labor in Canada. But I think what we try to say is that a labor movement, which was interested and capable of acting on behalf of the interests of, of incarcerated workers who are objectively the most marginalized and oppressed workers in this country. A, a movement that was interested and capable of doing something for those workers would be much better able to take on the big questions and the big issues for workers writ large. Yeah, Jordan's right. So what I said before, you know, if prisoners could do it, anybody can. Uh, I think that's, that's more rhetoric, uh, but it's positive rhetoric because it's not wrong that when uh, you have somebody who 
you might think is in a weaker position uh, and they, they're, they're accomplishing something that you thought wasn't possible, it sure as hell could change your mind about what's truly possible. So it, it's, it, in a sense, could be a, a very motivational, uh, inspirational call, what you will, uh, for other workers to see prisoners unionize, to realize what's possible for them. Because they, nobody can say, well, you know, uh, like people in prison, they, they just have so many advantages that make it easier for them to unionize. Nobody can say that. It's a, it's literally like people in the, in the most difficult position able to unionize. That's a pretty good example, I think. I guess as a final sort of proactive question, I mean, people can obviously and should go and read your book, but also go to your, you know, locals and try to push for this idea. But do you know of any other organizations or anything that is doing work along these lines? I mean, like our book didn't come out of nowhere. I think there there has been increasing labor activism in prisons over the last decade or so. In 2013, there was a national strike in Canada uh, about wages, about when, when wage cuts were, were enacted. And we've seen a lot of activism and major strike activity in the United States over the same period. The Industrial Workers of the World that um, has a incarcerated workers organizing committee, which is, you know, in the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, and here, I think people in both the kind of prison justice, prison abolition movement and the labor movement have increasingly been thinking about some of these issues. You know, we saw, you know, questions about the role of police and guard unions in the labor movement come to the fore during, you know, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and, you know, in discussions of, of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and yeah, I think, you know, there are people increasingly talking about this. There is a um, working group at the um, uh, contract faculty and, and uh, graduate student union at McMaster University uh, who has a kind of incarcerated worker um, committee who very generously invited Asif and I to talk in Hamilton um and yeah i think there are increasingly hopefully uh linkages being made between between prison justice and, and labor issues and of course there is a, a, the prisoners own union which has continued to exist uh from the uh early 2010s to today which is a canadian prisoners labor confederation so uh there there is there there is infrastructure out there but it needs to get much much bigger i think we can't uh we can't in any way uh diminish the the extent of work that that needs to be done uh, to support prisoners in their their efforts to to win their labor rights uh, there's plenty more that's needed as far as infrastructural support and i think as as we see prisoners make more and more gains and and see active efforts of prisoners to unionize uh i'm confident that we'll see more resources you know, coming to the table for for prisoners as we wrap up then, is, is there anything that uh, you two are doing now uh, together or separately that you, that you want to promote on the show? Or, is, uh, or where can people find your work? Well, uh, people who are interested in, in, uh, in the book, uh, they can uh, go to phonewoodpublishing.ca uh, and, and find it there if you like, or go to your, one of your local bookstores and see if it's there if you're, if you're curious about the book. Um, but as far as uh, other things uh, that I'm working on, I do criminal defense law and uh, prison law and immigration law. Some of the cases I'm involved in uh, have a fairly public profile and some of those are coming up again pretty soon. Uh, so I'll be pretty busy with that. Uh, 
I, I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but Jordan, what about you? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm still uh, on Twitter at so people, you know, I post everything I write there basically. So if people are interested, I'm Jor uh, Jordan L House at Jordan L House on Twitter. Oh yeah, so my website is arashidlaw.ca, and I try to put some uh, content up there uh, whenever I remember. If there's anything I'm doing that that gets into the news, or if there's something I want to share, I, I try something useful. I try to put it uh, put it there. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I and I strongly recommend the book. So uh, everyone listening thank should uh, go and pick that up. And, and thank you so much for doing this. This was awesome. Thanks thank for you. having us. Thanks again to Jordan House and Asif Rashid. You can find all the links to their website and social media accounts in the show notes of this episode. I will also link to Fernwood Publishing if you want to pick up the book yourself. Lastly, if you enjoy this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash laborintensive. If you become a member, you can have access to the Patreon-only podcast that I do with Eric Wickham called Bad Books by Bad People. You might know Eric from being a co-host of Big Shiny Takes, which is also a part of the Harbinger Media Network. I just released the July episode, which is Chapter 7 of Shakedown by Ezra Levant. Next month, we will be releasing our final episode for that book, so stay tuned. If that interests you, go check it out, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. This podcast is part of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community of progressive podcasts. Visit their website at harbingermedianetwork.com to listen to other incredible left-leaning podcasts. Thanks as well to Dan Van Winden, who produced the music for this podcast. If you want to follow Labor Intensive on social media, find links to our social media accounts in the show notes of this episode. 